Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. This episode takes us into the mysterious world of Joanne Harris, the author of the UK bestseller Chocolat. Discussing her latest work, A Narrow Door, a gripping whodunit that explores the lens a headmistress will go to to protect her school's reputation. Joanne's writing often takes aim at difficult topics, and A Narrow Door is no exception. Originally recorded at Bradford Literature Festival 2022, this episode dives into the mind of this acclaimed author to explore the themes that make her work so compelling. everyone and welcome to Bradford Literature Festival. Some of you will have heard me say this many times already today but we do remind you to please turn your phones to silent or turn them off to avoid disruption um, and if you'd like to tell us what you think please do tweet and use the hashtag Bradford Lit Fest. Um, additionally if anyone would like to be excluded from any of our photography please do let us know so we can provide you with one of our lanyards um, and finally if at any point you do feel like you need to take a moment please feel free to step outside and come back in when you can and without further ado please welcome your host Yvette Huddleston. Thank you. Well, it's lovely to see so many of you here, and I'm delighted to be here and to um, be doing this event with the wonderful Joanne Harris. So I'll start off by telling you a little bit about Joanne. I'm sure you know quite a lot already. Um, and then we'll be talking for about 45 minutes, um, and then we'll open up to questions from you. Um, so put your thinking caps on and uh, um, prepare for that one. Um, so, Joanne Harris is the best-selling author of over 20 novels across lots of different genres, including historical fiction, suspense, magic, realism, mythology and fantasy. Um, she's also written short stories, novellas, three cookbooks, a musical, several screenplays and um, the libretti for two short operas. Um, her books have been published in more than 50 countries and she's won a number of UK and international awards. Um, her 1999 novel, Chocolat, became an international bestseller, and the book has sold over a million copies in the UK alone. Um, and in the year 2000, it was made into an Oscar-nominated film starring Juliette Binoche. So Joanne was a teacher for 15 years, um, during which she wrote three novels, including Chocolat, um, and that's quite um, pertinent to the novel we'll be talking about today. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Um, and Joanne's also been a judge for many literary prizes, um, the Orange Prize, for example, and the Betty Trask Award, and she's currently the chair of the Society of Authors. So today we're going to be talking about um, her latest novel, um, A Narrow Door, which is a psychological thriller, um, and it's the third book in a series of novels set at St. Oswald's Grammar School. Um, and we'll be talking about that, obviously, and then other aspects of her long and very successful career. Um, and these has, your psychological thrillers have been very well received um, by and praised by sort of eminent figures in the genre like Val McDermott and Harlan Coben. Um, and this book was described by one reviewer as irresistibly readable, dark and brilliant with a masterful emotional punch, which I wholeheartedly agree with. So, <laughs> so, um, so, Yes, so the novel, um, it's, it's the third in the series, as I said, at St. Oswald's Grammar School, which is in the fictional Yorkshire town of Mulberry. 
Yeah, we, we pronounce it Morbury mm. in the fictional town of Morbury because yes. it's the kind of place where nobody who doesn't live there can actually pronounce the name. And that tells <laughs> you a little bit about the place. Um, I yes. live in a place called Armonbury, which the locals pronounce Ambry. It has nothing to do with Morbury, but it's not a million miles away. <laughs> So, like the, the, the previous two novels in this series, The gentle, uh, Gentlemen and Players and Different Class, um, but it can be read as a standalone novel. Yeah, like they're, they're all standalone novels. They're just set in the same place, and mm -hmm. some of the same characters tend to come back. So, yeah. if, you, if you like the book and you want to expand the universe, then you can read the others. Otherwise, you can, you can just take it as it is. It should yeah. be fine. So, so let's talk about the school then. So it's a, it's a traditional boys' grammar school um, that's had quite it's seen quite a bit of scandal over the past few years and difficulty and things in, as detailed in the book. Um, and it's just sort of on the cusp of a big change, isn't it? So it's 500 years old and it's the first time they've ever had a female head in that time, um, and they're about to admit girls to the school and then tell us that th there's a, a strange discovery by a group of some of the students, isn't there, which kicks yes, things well, off. Yes, you know, <coughs> of course, anybody who knew me from my previous life will know that I was a teacher in, in Leeds um, at a boys' school, a boys' grammar school, um, of venerable age in Leeds for quite some time. I think I was there for 15 years. And, it, well, St. Oswald's is not entirely dissimilar, let's put it that way. Um, so St. Oswald's is... is a school of some reputation, but it's had its ups and downs. It's not doing tremendously well financially, and it's been rocked by scandals. And last year, which was the events of different class, a crisis team moved in to hopefully pull this, this failing school back into its, its academic uh, uh, area again. And the head always leaves. For some reason in these books, the head never lasts very long. They're a bit like defense against the dark arts teachers. They, they, they don't last. Uh, this one has left, but one member of the crisis team has remained, uh, who was one of the deputies. Uh, her name is Rebecca Buckfast, and she is the other main character of this book. Um, the returning character is, is called Roy Straitley, and he's a Latin master, perpetually on the verge of retirement. In Gentlemen and Players, he was just about to retire, but he didn't want to. Partly because he is very loyal to St. Oswald's. He loves it. He loves the place. He loves his boys. He doesn't love the management. There are lots of things he doesn't love. He doesn't love email or whiteboards or men in suits or the computer department or the German department <laughs> or the third master. But otherwise, he's very, very fond of St. Oswald's, and, and he has nothing to retire to. Um, he has no family, he has no friends outside of his colleagues at St. Oswald's. He's terribly afraid of retirement. And so you can tell that he's going to hang on for dear life. And every year, there is some new challenge for him to face. And this year, it's the worst challenge of all. Women have entered the school. <laughs> There is a headmistress. For the first time in 500 years, she has brought girls in with her. In fact, there were girls last year in the sixth form, but he didn't get to see many of them. Now they're everywhere. And all the things that, that, that girls bring with them, strange smells, yogurts, fruit, salad, salad bowls, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and of course, new facilities too, new sports facilities. Uh, 
changing rooms, bathrooms, all kinds of things. And so poor old St. Oswald's is being rocked by all these changes, and Roy Straitley particularly feels that now the school needs him more than ever. Um, and on the first day of term, uh, a group of his boys, his special squad of boys who he's known since they arrived at the school and who are now kind of 15 or 16, um, bring him the news that they found something on the, on the site of one of these grand new buildings that uh, the new head has planned. This is the site of a swimming pool, and they've seen something that they think might be human remains. So mm -hmm. Straitly comes out to, to check on this, and then he tells the new head what he has seen. Um, and, that and the surprise is that actually she's not all that surprised. Yes. Not only does she know something about this, but she, she hasn't... She doesn't seem very enthusiastic in, in sharing uh, with the police or with the authorities, and so she tells, she tells a story. This is a story within a story. She tells the story that Straitly needs to hear before they decide what to do. And the story gets more and more complicated and, mm. and goes back in time, as a lot of my stories do, because these characters are very much... It, yes. She, so you've told us that, I mean, Roy Straitley is a great... I mean, he's a very... Um, you really warm to him because he's kind of... Um, he's got this great sort of acerbic wit. <laughs> um, I think you feel sympathy. Rebecca Buckfast, she's interesting because she's not an entirely sympathetic character. And, but as you get no. to know her, you're sort of definitely rooting for her, which I think is really, it's well, interesting the way you've monster, done that. Actually. Yeah. I, love the way yeah. I, I love the way you say she's not an entirely unsympathetic <laughs> character. That understatement then. She's a then. terrible <laughs> woman. She is absolutely terrible. She has done terrible things, mm. but I kind of like her too. Uh, yeah. Roy Straitley is not perfect in, in any way at all, but I've enjoyed writing him and his voice, and I enjoy writing Buckfast's voice as well, even though she's, she is clearly a bad woman who has done bad things. Yeah. I don't think that's a spoiler, really. She tells you herself on the first page. Yes, she does tell you how, just how awful she is, actually, yes. So it's, I can see the relish that you have there. So it was in, enjoyable to write that kind of character, I imagine. It kind of it's was, fun, particularly yeah. after spending 15 years at Leeds Grammar School. <laughs> But Buckfast also, she's quite, she's a sort of unreliable narrator as well, isn't she? Which, again, is that quite satisfying? Because you're kind of playing with the reader's expectations all the time. Isn't well, the thing is, no reliable mm. narrator exists, mm. because as soon as you write anything in the first person, you are seeing things from the point of view of the person talking to you. Nobody has exactly the same point of view as anybody else. So even if a narrator is trying really hard to be honest, they will not tell you everything. And my narrators are not always trying very hard, to be honest. So they, they don't lie to you exactly, but they do lie to each other. And because this book has two narrators, one of them is Roy Straitley, the other one is Rebecca Buckfast, you, the reader, you get a bit of an overview because you see the things that they're not telling each other. Mm -hmm. So you get to know more than each of them informs the other about. But you, you still might not know everything because mm -hmm. people's perspectives can be can be tricky. Yes, and they withhold certain things, and yes. Also, oh, there is something wrong with, with Rebecca Buckfast. Mm. There's something wrong with her, and her memory, and her past, and her upbringing, and it's at the heart of this story, and mm. it's, it is a kind of puzzle that you have to unwrap right to the centre before you really understand everything that's been going on. Mm, right, it's wonderfully complex, and uh, yes, it's, it's great. You're kind of excavating as you go along as you're reading it, which is brilliant. 
Um, so you mentioned um, the dual narrative and that it's first-person narration, which is something you do quite a bit in your books, isn't it? And, and yeah. um, so, w what what is, is I mean, what's attractive about that device for you, and what does it allow you to do as a writer? Well, I think that I mean I've been using multiple narrator narratives for thirty years now, so I've kind of got used to it, mm. and I've got used to what it allows me to do. As, as an author, because it's, to me it's a little bit like different camera angles. You get different character angles on a story. So you can see characters from the inside, and then you can see them from the outside too. You can see how somebody else sees them, and you can see how they present themselves and how they see themselves. You can get their inner monologue. You can get the things they're thinking. You can look into their past but you can also know the things that they don't know within the story. And so to me, it, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense using multiple narrators because otherwise the, the, you're limited to one single camera and what that camera sees. I'm, I'm using camera imagery because I'm just really visual in the way that, uh, that I think about writing. But yeah, it, it just seems, and it's fun. It, it's mm. nice to get to the heart of some of these characters and, and to see what, what makes them tick. Mm -hmm. um, and particularly, particularly villains, because otherwise villains tend to, to end up being quite unidimensional in, in novels. And I don't like that. I like actually to, to find out where that person got the thing that made them into a villain, because being a villain is, is not, it's not a standard life choice, and usually it's, it's a line in the sand that you end up having to cross. Mm. And you've crossed it before you even know that, the, that it was there in the first place. And, and I, I like that moment of uncertainty in characters, which is why I so often write about their past. Mm. Um, so the, the two time frames, as you say, that's kind of exploring the past. So we've got 1989 and 2006. And as you say, you want to try and understand the villain. I mean, you explore, explore some really... Um, I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, childhood trauma, for example, and, and the, the sort of effect that that has in the long term. Um, so with something like that, what kind of, did you do some research on that sort of thing? Or, you know, was it no, something you decided you wanted? Years. <laughs> and, and I also taught in a school, and mm. every school is a potential daily stage for tragedy and farce. And everywhere that I've taught, because I taught in other places and not just Leeds Grammar School, but everywhere seemed to have secrets and people that were hiding secrets and just things that happened, everyday dramas. Um, and it was quite easy to pull out certain elements of that and to fictionalize them and to take characters and to fictionalize them too. And, and I mean, the reason I have to fictionalize all this stuff is that nobody would ever believe the truth. Mm. If, if I were to write an absolutely realistic book about being a teacher in a school, then nobody would believe it because it would be far too far-fetched. And so I tone everything down. But it's, it's you know, it's like every community. I mean, I think one of the things you, you said that I wrote a lot of different genres, which is mm. kind of true if you're a publisher and you're trying to fit things into boxes. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the overview of what I write, it's generally the same kind of narrative. It's the narrative of the community under pressure. And the smaller mm. the community, the more volatile it can be when, it, when it's under pressure. Mm. And schools are amazing communities mm. because basically what you've got in a school is a community of teachers, which 
more or less stay the same, but obviously there are newcomers, there are people who come and go, there are people who die, there are newbies who arrive. Every year there is a certain amount of change. And then you've got the pupils who come and go on a regular basis too. And you've got the core of old faithfuls who have been there forever and who have made friendships and also the opposite of friendships. I find that uh, staff rooms are filled with these lines that you cannot cross mm. because at some point 20 years ago, Dr. So-and-so took all the green chalk without telling Dr. <laughs> so-and-so <laughs> and there has been, uh, let's say, a coldness between them ever since. And so it, it was quite easy actually to, to look at these relationships which can sometimes be closer than family relationships mm. because when you teach in a school, um, you end up seeing so a lot more of your time. colleagues and the people you teach than, than you do of your family. Mm. Um, and so it was, it was quite easy to, to kind of put those characters under pressure and, mm. to, and, and to see what happened. And do you think a kind of the psychological thriller genre, if we we're talking a bit about genre, is p suited particularly, or the, uh, the school setting, that sort of fairly closeted environment, does, does that work particularly well? Well, it kind of does, yes, because mm. schools not only have a ready-made small community which is always under pressure, because actually you never know as a teacher what's going to happen and what you're going to have to deal with, but you also have a community that has its own rules, its own infrastructure, its pyramid of authority that you have to defer to or not in Straitley's case, um, and it exists independently of the outside world in a lot of ways. Um, so there's that, and there's, there's, there's an interesting dynamic there when you're dealing with people who are within this community as opposed to, to outside of it, where the rules are a bit different and the authority structure is a bit different. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as you write anything about characters and go deeply into characters, you realise what everybody is hiding. Um, I've recently found out that there is a genre called dark academia. I didn't realise that this genre <laughs> <Wow>. existed. <laughs> In the same way that when I wrote Chocolat, I didn't realise that, that magic realism existed either because I hadn't read any. But, um, but yeah, I mean, based magic realism. I'm obviously <laughs> not the only person who thinks that there is something essentially a bit spooky about schools. Mm. Particularly when everybody isn't there, on, on the days when there are no pupils or after home time when you are the one member of staff left still mar marking books and all of a sudden the walls are full of weird noises. There's something, there's something there to look at and so that was one of the things that, that entered this book which is, it's mm. not a supernatural exactly but it has elements of the supernatural in it simply because of the character who's Who's telling the story? Mm. Rebecca Buckfast has got a ghost in her past. I think we, we don't need to worry too much about spoilers here because it's one of her main um, character points. Mm. Rebecca Buckfast had a brother called Conrad who was 10 years older than she was and who, when he was 15, disappeared from school and she was there. And not only has she no memory of exactly what happened, but her family and she have never really quite survived the loss of this boy who nobody knows if he's alive or dead or what happened to him. But it, it, it obviously created a kind of gap where Rebecca Buckfast's childhood should have been and where some of her childhood relationships could have been. And, and this is partly why she is the way she is, but it's also why she is a deeply haunted character who has spent much of her career trying to find out what happened to Conrad mm. and sort of trying to get her own back. 
And, and that's where the kind of the, the sympathy for her as, uh, comes in as well. You know, even though, she, as you say, she's a, she's a monster, we, we kind of feel for her, don't well we? I do, so I certainly do. I think yeah. you can have sympathy for anybody once you understand why they are the way they are. Yeah. Um, because as soon as you start to scratch the surface of people, they become interesting and they have things that have shaped them and things that have dictated their behaviour and you get to know the things that they care about or the things that they don't care about. And that, that this is, to me, what makes an interesting character in a, in a thriller. So this is why my thrillers are not so much quite about the external life of people, but very much about their internal mm. life as well. So that's, there's so many themes in there, as you say, you know, the way we've shaped by our past, what we're prepared to do for personal gain, you know, why, why we behave in certain ways. Um, there's also, the sort of and grief and loss as well, which is a huge part of it. But class is also a theme here, isn't it? As well, and yeah. throughout the, the, the this series of books, you know, which seems to permeate every aspect of English life, but particularly education. Well, yes, mm. I, I mean, with with a school like St Oswald's, which is a private fee-paying school, um, I set it at a time where I still understood the sort of school I'd taught in. I wouldn't set it in a school now because actually schools have moved on a bit. And because mm -hmm. I left in the early 2000s, I, I, I have set these stories in the early 2000s. So there is a bit of a retro feel about it, although St. Oswald's is a bit of a retro place anyway, much as the old Leeds Grammar School was a bit of a retro place. Um, full disclosure, my form room was in the bell tower. <laughs> there were about a thousand steps to walk up to the bell tower and no, I didn't teach in my form room all the time and so I was running down, up and down those steps all the time uh, with piles of books and bander machines and overhead projectors and all the other garbage that you needed when you were a school teacher at that time. Um, and I was, I think, one of four women members mm. of staff. So everybody else in my life was either a teenage boy or a gentleman of a certain age. <laughs> Which is why I write so much about teenage boys and gentlemen of a certain age, because <laughs> for all that time, that was my small community, and I realized that, that actually being a woman in that environment was not what you'd call straightforward. Yeah. I mean, even basic things like toilets, there weren't any women's toilets. There was a disabled toilet, which you had to, which was always locked, and I had to run down my thousand steps to the office and get the secretary to give me the key to the disabled toilet, then run back up again, go to the toilet, and then take the key Gosh. back again. So there was a whole thing going on here about the, the kind of passive resistance to women generally. Mm. And I knew a lot of people like Straitly, and some of them were appealing, as Straitly is, and some of them were much less appealing. And there was a lot of general bullying going on. Yeah. And, and so I gave some of those experiences to Buckfast, who ends up starting her teaching career in a place very like... St. Oswald's mm. very like the old Leeds Grammar School. And so I, I've given her a number of my, my own experiences. Yeah. Um, Which, yeah, I mean, the, the, the novel has this great subtitle, you say, men walk in through the main gates, women have to improvise. Yeah. That's so right. I, I get, do you feel some of those frustrations when you were, that, that, that Buckfast has? Do you oh, know, yes, some absolutely. Rebellion that she does, you know, she, 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 she's told she can't wear a trouser suit, so she comes to, to work the next day dressed in a bright red miniskirt, which I think 
Yes, I great. did that. Did, did I, you? That was one of the stories <laughs> that I gave her. I, I thought. I'm yes, glad that's one of the stories. Did, did, did yeah. Many of those small, harmless things mm. are, are, are things that happened in real life, and and you know, this was the this was the 90s, um, and turning up in a trouser suit was not unheard of in those days. But at least grammar school, it jolly well was, mm. and uh, the third master who was. For some reason, there were two deputy heads, and one was the second master, and the other was the third master, because the place had its own language, as they often do. Institutions like to like to make outsiders feel like outsiders, and so they they have they have a language which you you only know if you're an insider, and and there's a bit of that in uh, in these books too. But yes, he beckoned me into his office and said, "Mrs. Harris, you're wearing a." you're wearing pants. And I said, yes, well, so are you, third master. <laughs> he said, no, no, this is unacceptable. A lady at Leeds Grammar School uh, will wear a skirt or a frock. So I thought, okay, I either cave in to this guy or I, I do something right now because otherwise I will get bullied forever. <laughs> so yes, the next day I came up in, rocked up in a red PVC miniskirt. <laughs> and and how did that go down? <laughs> well, it was, it, it was interesting because I thought, you know what, I'm going to have to wear this all day if he, doesn't <laughs> if he doesn't bite. And I thought, you know what, I think he'll probably bite. So I, I went into his office rather early before any of the boys turned up. And when he picked his jaw up off the ground, I said, as you can see, I have um, I've followed the, uh, the dress code of LGS, but if you felt that the dress code needed revising, I've also brought the trouser suit <laughs> in a dry cleaning bag. And he looked at me and said, wear the pants. And we never heard anything about it again. So <laughs> I, was, I was able to, uh, to not have my bluff called there because... That's fantastic. But it was, it was one mm -hmm. of the many things that, that, that I was made to feel as a young woman in that very patriarchal environment. And sometimes I would just laugh at it because it was hilarious. And sometimes it would, it would make me quite angry. Mm. And I think it was that anger that I pulled into Buckfast's character because Buckfast is not really like me at all and she, she doesn't tend to find things hilarious. She tends to find things that she wants to get even for. Mm. And, and so she has so a, an element of resentment, shall we say, against these patriarchal institutions. And one of the things that she's tried to do as head of St. Oswald's, is to, to try and redress the balance, bring girls into this school, bring it kicking and screaming into a new era. But, you know, there's, there's still this class element. It is still a selective school. It's still a school that looks down upon the sunny bankers, who are the, the ones in the comprehensive across the village, uh, who they never talk to and, and they have a kind of on-running feud with. Um, there is still this idea that... It's Gender is not the only barrier to entering this small community. There is also money, there is also birth, there is also a level of education. Um, and so, yeah, th th these books have, have got quite a bit of that in mm. it too. Yeah. Um, and the secrets, as you mentioned, is everybody's got, pr practically everybody's got something to hide, haven't they? And so, yeah. yeah. And, and then it's just about the skill. Uh, your skill is wonderful in the way that all that is sort of gradually... Uh, revealed. Um, just to, uh, you know, talking about your, your teaching career, obviously you were still teaching at the time that you wrote Chocolat. Yeah, um, I'd written three books by the time yes, uh, yes. I left teaching because, again, full disclosure, writing books isn't generally a proper job um, and you don't generally get to make enough money to, to not have 
another job that actually pays the bills. And mm. so I thought, okay, I, I can do this. I can, I can write these books um, and also teach and put bread on the table and, and, and do both at once. Which is why, I mean, in some ways, people who know me and who knew me then will be able to see where those books came from. And particularly chocolat. If you think about chocolat really for a minute, what is it? It's the story of a young woman in a very traditionalist, very patriarchal setting with one guy who is in charge and who basically tells everybody what to do and makes her feel like an outsider. Wonder where that came from. <laughs> it, it's not a million miles away from Buckfast and, and St. Oswald's either. Mm. And this is because I wrote Chocolat in, in that environment. And I was thinking along those lines already. And, and, and mm. some of those um, old Frenchmen with their berries and their French loaves were, were kind of pretty much transplanted from LGS and put into this French <laughs> village because it, it wasn't... I wasn't in a situation where I could just go off and do six months research in French villages. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll build my own and I will use for my inspiration the people around me, yeah. which, is, which, is why, which is why some of the, uh, the characters that, that I met in, in my, my teaching career ended up being mysteriously close to characters that were were also there in Chocolat. That was interesting. Did any of them recognize themselves uh, in well, Chocolat? Well, uh, <laughs> it's interesting that you should say this because there was, one, there was one gentleman called Mr. Fry who was a physics teacher. And he was very nice. He was, he was a, a small and modest gentleman, a bachelor, who basically just lived for his teaching, much like Straitly did. And he had a dog called Charlie. And, um, and I kind of... I took his character and, and made him. It wasn't really like taking the whole of him. It was, it was like casting him in a role that I knew he would fit. It's, it's much more like amateur dramatics than, than <laughs> painting portraits of people. You, you put somebody in a role where you think, oh, they, they would fit that role. And so I put Mr. Fry into Chocolat because I'd been told that a book like that wouldn't sell, had no chance of selling. So I thought, well, who's it going to hurt? <laughs> And then when the book came out and was a very surprised bestseller, and then when there was this movie about to come out and 2,000 LGS boys instantly recognized Mr. Fry, <laughs> I realized <laughs> that if I had really wanted to keep his identity secret, I should have changed the name of the dog. <laughs> <laughs> so if there are any writers out there, always change the name of the dog because that way you'll have plausible <laughs> deniability and I did not have it. And, and what was that like? I mean, as you say, it wasn't expected to... to uh, uh, first of all, why did they think it wouldn't sell? Just because... Because they never heard of anything like it before. Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't a fashionable genre. In fact, it mm. wasn't even an identifiable genre. They didn't know what it was. Mm. Uh, it, it, they weren't sure whether it was supposed to be literary fiction or commercial fiction or women's fiction or they just invented is, this yeah. word gastromance, and I thought, <laughs> what does that mean? I mean. Um, so they didn't know how to sell it, and, and mm. so it, it wasn't an easy, it wasn't an obvious thing for them to, to bring out. Yeah. And, and so no, I and, and my two previous books, which again had been very different from each other, had not had anything more than, shall we say, a cult following, which meant that they were largely unread, except by one woman in Pinna who wrote me several fan letters, which I still have. Oh. Um, <laughs> but no, it, it, was, it wasn't a given that any of that was, was going mm. to be 
successful. You, you never know with surprise bestsellers because you know, that's why they're surprise bestsellers. And what was it like then when it, you know, because it took off massively, you know, and, and, and then be. obviously then there was the film and everything. How, what, what, that's over 20 years ago now. It must have been completely well, it, all of a sudden the English your life, department yeah. hated my guts. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> and also all of a sudden I would get newspapers waiting for me at the, uh, at the exit to the school, and mm -hmm. I realized that I was going to have to at least take time out from my job, if not give it up altogether. And so I took a sabbatical, um, and then I never went back, mm -hmm. because, because all of a sudden I was being asked to do things for the first time, things like touring, um, things like festivals and signings. I'd never done any of that with my, my previous books, and, and I realized that it was, the whole thing was going to expand. Mm. And so I, I, I went back rather crestfallen to my head of department after having taken my year's sabbatical in the hope of, you know, getting all this book stuff out of my system. Um, and I said, well, you know, you know how I said I was coming back? Well, I'll probably not be able to. Sorry. And he just laughed and said, oh, darling, we've given your job to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of pushed. But um, no, mm. th th there's only a certain level that you can sustain the two things at, and I, I realized that I'd passed that without even realizing it. Yes, and was that, it sounds as though that was, it, was it a difficult decision? I mean, it was, or... Well, was yeah, it, 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 was, it was kind of a difficult decision because I left a, a very stable job hmm. where I knew exactly what was going to happen uh, to this very unstable job where nobody, nobody has the slightest idea what's going to happen next. You're only as good as your last book. Nobody knows whether you're going to be able to sustain a career, there is no pension, there, there, are, there are no proper hours or anything. Mm. Remember that my parents are both teachers. My grandfather was a teacher. It was, it was generally assumed when I was a child that I would be a teacher. And I assumed it too. I was, I was, I was sort of expected to. Um, mm. yeah, yeah. The fact that I actually quite fancied the idea of being a writer just didn't pass muster with my, my mother particularly, just said, well, of course you can't be a writer, that's, that's just silly. It's not a proper job. Mm. She still feels this way, by the way. <laughs> she, she, still, she still feels Even that, that oh I made a big mistake. Oh. And do you, do you miss teaching at all? Not Is enough to go back. Mm. Right. <laughs> but certainly enough to write books about it. Because yeah. uh, I think that, that some of these books are, are written from a place... I mean, they are, they are psychological thrillers and they are dramas in their way, but they're also written from a place of nostalgia. Yeah. You know, they Straitly's affection for St. Oswald's is also my affection for the old Leeds Grammar School for, for all its faults, uh, for all the fact that, you know, there were mice in the bell tower that came out in the afternoons to try and eat the bits of sandwich that the boys had left lying around and <laughs> the fact that I had to run around all the time up and down these ridiculous stone steps and the fact that even after I'd been at the school for 10 years, occasionally, there would still be teachers who mistook me for a secretary or, or, or for one of the boys. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I got quite mm -hmm. fond of the place. It was, it was, it was interesting. Mm. It was a bit like teaching in Gormenghast in some ways because <laughs> it was just so laden with stories and tradition and mm. dreadful feuds between people. That, that you, it, was, it was a drama waiting to happen, and at some point I was going to crack and actually write it. But mm. uh, I did say from the start that I wasn't going to write about teaching, and I kept that promise for a while, but uh, once okay. I got far enough away from it and many of my ex-colleagues had died, then I was able to, to sort of to write these books and, yeah. and to enjoy the process.
Um, just to go back to Chocolat a little bit, ju just about um, the film, which was obviously also a huge success. Um, and I just wondered how much involvement you had in that or um, and what kind of an experience it, it was. And, and also that thing of having to, is it hard to let go of something that was, you know, was clearly so... No, so not important. Really. No, it's not. Mm. It's not hard to let go because I wasn't being asked to let go. Mm, right. I mean, the book's still there. If you want to read the book, nobody's changed a word of it. Mm. The fact that somebody made a film and the, the film wasn't quite the same, it was was, it was sort of irrelevant to me because if you don't want somebody to do something that's different to the thing you did, then you don't sell them the rights to do it. As soon as you have done, then. Any expectation that you have are just unrealistic. It's like giving your favourite tweed jacket to Oxfam and then standing at the door going, no, you can't, you can't sell it to him. Uh, no, you can't sell it to him. He's too fat. And no, no, you can't sell it to him either. It's got to be just right. Doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so the best thing to do is, is to decide whether you are able to let somebody have free reign over your work or not. If not, fine. You keep the moral high ground. I took the cash. It meant that I was able to <laughs> give up my job and to have security for just long enough to, to try out being a writer to see if it would work for me. Yeah. And, and it, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still trying it out. I'm still, I still feel as if I'm a teacher on a very long sabbatical sometimes, <laughs> but, uh, but I think that's, that's always going to be the case. Yeah. So, um, you, that's, that Chocolat was sort of the start, then you wrote four, there's another four books, I think, is that in the Chocolat series, um, where, you know, you're coming back and revisiting those, those characters, and, and you like, th there's a few series, that you, do you, how do you, what, how do you decide to go back, because, you know, sometimes there's, I don't go back three. at all. No, I've never gone Are they back always anywhere. there with you? The, the, yeah, the uh, exactly. It, it's mm. not like they've disappeared. It's not like they're not <coughs> they're not ongoing characters in my mind. I just don't always write about them because mm. they don't always have a story to tell. But very often, I feel as if actually they have contacted me and they've gone, "Okay, X amount of time has passed, and hey, something's happened. Do you want to hear this story?" And 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 so I end up I end up writing the story that there is, but it, it's, it's not generally planned in the way that you might think it is. It's, mm. it's not that there isn't this, this kind of um, godlike view of, of what will be going on. V very often I'm as surprised by developments as anybody else is because, because life is not predictable. And mm. people who are living people as opposed to just flat people on the page, they're not very predictable either. And so I quite like the the unpredictability of that, of, of, of looking at a character that you knew 10 years ago and going, okay, what are they like now? Has anything changed? And invariably it has, because, because that's, that's what life mm -hmm. does to people. Mm -hmm. that's but that's, that's why I don't really think of them as series. Because mm. the start of a story is only the start of the story. It's not the start of that person's life, generally, or... or the things that led up to that story. It's just a little slice of narrative set within a certain series of artificial parameters that, that, that end up in the book. The rest of it, you know, is anybody's guess, including yours, which is why I left Chocolat an open-ended story and said, of course, as I always do, and, and I always lie, that I wasn't going to come back to it. But <laughs> I kind of did. I love the idea of them, of your characters kind of getting in touch with you and saying... Hello. 
I'm here. Let's yeah, it, it feels a bit it. like getting postcards from yeah. friends, particularly with Vian. <coughs> Vian is, is a character who has basically grown alongside me, and she isn't me, but we have certain things in common. Mm. Particularly what we have in common is, is motherhood um, and a certain relationship with our children. And because I wrote Chocolat as the mother of a four-year-old, I, I wrote Vian as the mother of a small child. And then when I wrote about Vian and Anouk again, I, I wrote about Anouk as an adolescent because I was by then the mother of an adolescent. And then when I wrote The Strawberry Thief, I wrote as the mother of a child who has left home and who is looking at her own journey and her own adventures and her own relationships and so but I, I had to live through that really to write it because I wouldn't have been able to to do it with any kind of conviction I wouldn't have felt that that I was ready mm. I wouldn't have known much about it yeah and and I think you've said before that you you'd like to work on sort of several projects at a time and how uh, well first of all why why do you do that and how how does it how do they kind of feed into each other or or don't they or is it what what's what's they don't approach? generally feed into each other unless they <coughs> are related projects and i don't generally write two related projects at the same time because otherwise you can get confused what i find is that i tend to write two very different things at the same time so that when inevitably I reach a point in one of my projects where I have to give it some time, either to do research or just to let the story develop, then I can be working on something else while that's happening. It mm. means that I'm just not waiting for something to happen. It's a bit like cooking, really. You, you, know, you, you, you cook, you prep something, something else is cooking, you turn something down, you let it simmer, you're preparing something else. The end result is going to be all produced at the same time, but, but done at different time intervals. So it kind of feels a bit like that to me. Mm -hmm. So I'll have one main thing that I'm preparing, and then there'll be another, or sometimes two, or sometimes three other things, little side projects that I'm also working on, which will take a little while to develop, because for me, a lot of the writing time is actually thinking time. It's not, it's not time at my desk typing. A lot of it is thinking things, planning things, waiting for them to prove. Um, and sometimes that can take years. I mean, my publishers have, have done a really good job of pretending that I write a book a year, but it's not really true. Um, most of those books took several years to write. Mm. Um, some of them took, you know, a decade to write. And the reason you don't get to see that is because there is a kind of rolling program of other things happening um, mm. during that time. Mm. Right, so I think we've got to the time where we can take a few questions from the floor. Um, is there a, a sort of roving mic? Um, well, you know, I can, just, or, I can just repeat, we can repeat if, the questions if you like, because I'm sure I can, I can hear you. So does anyone have... So yes. we've got somebody on the front. Yeah. I think there's a mic coming. Oh, there yeah, is so an actual mic. Okay. I was hear you. <laughs> Thank you for this afternoon. Uh, I've loved your books for the last um, 20 years or so. Um, Thank you. Went to France on holiday a lot um, as a child and in my teens, so it was always, oh, I can read a Joanne Harris set in France. Um, so that was a pleasure. Um, I was just wondering whether uh, what it is about France that's really um, influenced you. Obviously, you've been a French teacher, um, but in well, terms I'm of French. your... 
Right, French okay. was my first language. My that. mother is okay. French. I've got a French passport. I've got a, a French family as well as an English family. So a lot of that, again, yeah. like, like writing about schools, a lot of it yeah. comes from a place of nostalgia and also a place of knowledge because I'm the product of these two, these two cultures. And, and also, I think, because temperamentally, I am more driven to write about stuff that's not right there on my doorstep. I need a certain amount of distance mm -hmm. from things to want to write about them because, you know, if, if, if I wanted to write gritty northern realism, then I would have been writing it when I was living in Barnsley. And, and, and for some reason, that didn't appeal. <laughs> Um, I'm also a freelancer, so thank you for what you've just said, because that absolutely describes my working life, so thank you very much. I have every sympathy. <laughs> I think we're all freelancers, honestly. <laughs> Any other questions? There's another yes. one near the front here. Hi, Joanna. Yeah, I think there's lots of uh, freelancers here in the audience. <laughs> um, I'm just really interested, because obviously the narrow door is a lot about memory, and at the moment one of the trends in terms of biography is memoir, and there are lots of publishers running um, courses on how to write your memoir, etc. Yes. And I just wondered whether or not that had actually impinged while you were writing a piece of fiction that is in effect a memoir, that that's one of the things that's actually out there as the non-fiction as well. And I, I found it fascinating, that thing about those memories that are real or maybe not real, or you think they're real but they're not because somebody else has given them to you. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an interesting point. Um, I've been interested in memory and its function and its persistence and its basic, its elusive nature for quite some time. Um, a few years ago now, I think it might have been 10 years ago, I, I was the judge of, um, of a science prize. Now, I read a lot of popular science books, and there was one particular one that didn't win, but I kind of wanted it to. It was a book by Charles Fernihoff called Pieces of Light, and it kind of blew me away. I, I, I don't read an awful lot of nonfiction, or I didn't at the time. And this was a book very much about memory and the brain, and, and its basic premise, which I thought was at the same time very interesting and also very simple and revolutionary was the idea that we tend to think of memory as a video camera and our memories as videos that we can revisit at any time. But that's not true because the brain isn't like that. The brain is a constantly shifting algorithm of little electrical impulses and feelings and the feelings tend to color memories. And so every time you recall a memory, it gets colored by the circumstances in which you recall it, how often you recall it, who you are with when you recall it, whether they say anything which feeds into it. And so by the end of that, you've no idea whether you're remembering the memory or a photograph of the memory mm. or somebody telling you that something happened or all of those things together. And when you think of that, I mean, my, I've got a brother who's 10 years younger than me, and my mother tells a lot of stories about me as a child. And I know that they're not about me, they're about him. Mm. And he thinks they're about me, but I was there and I remember. And, and sometimes he and I will talk about things, about relatives, about something that happened. And he will tell a story, and then I will tell the story, and I'll realize how very different our two perspectives were, partly because we were of a different age, but also partly because there's been this cross-pollination from other people's input. 
And when you think that this happens to all of us on a daily basis, if you then add in the factor of trauma, a memory that has traumatic implications, and when you think how, how that can be affected by your feelings when you recall it, then you start understanding things like false memory syndrome, and you start understanding how, how thoroughly unreliable things like witness statements can be, because even when somebody thinks that they're telling the absolute truth, hmm. that might not be the case. And I thought as I read this book, wow, this is going to be interesting. And I've been writing bits and pieces about it ever since, because mm. it just opened up all kinds of storytelling possibilities for me. And mm. so this is why all three of my St. Oswald's books have got elements of this. This is why books like Blue-Eyed Boy have. Um, because this idea of memory and perception just became really important to me. Mm. Well, that's really it's a long answer for your short <coughs> question. I do apologize. Interesting. Yes. Yes, up to you. Hi, um, thank you for coming out to spend your afternoon with us. I'm Ibrahim Knight, I'm an actor, but um, I'm trying my hand now at writing because storytelling is what's important to me. So what I wanted to ask you about or get your thoughts on was the difference in the mediums of writing a novel as opposed to something like a screenplay. I find myself um, gravitating towards writing screenplays, but I think that's because I might be a little bit yes. sort of ADHD and can't sort of lack the discipline to write a, lo a longer piece like a novel. But um, what, what, what do you think of that difference? Because you've had a, a, a novel, you know, converted into a screenplay and then you've seen that take a life of its own um, and a trajectory of its own. Um, why do you choose novels over screenplays and speaking about Chocolat, what did you, you know, when it did go and take that life of its own, do you look at that and you still see that as your baby, you know, uh, wh and what did you think of the um, overall finished piece of that? And did you meet Johnny Depp? That's a lot mm -hmm. of, <laughs> that's a lot that's of questions. Of questions yeah. A lot of questions in one, I'll try and remember what they were, but if I, if I forget, just poke me. Mm. Um, the okay. easy one first, yes, I did meet Johnny Depp, but we're not an item or anything. <laughs> um, but yes, it's interesting that you should talk about the, the relationship between screenplays and novels and the idea of discipline, because to me, screenplays are much more rigid discipline than writing a novel. I know it's, it's not as long, but writing screenplays has become extremely formulaic. Mm. Um, the simple answer for why don't I write screenplays is basically it's almost impossible to write screenplays and have them picked up unless you're already a writer of screenplays and you have your screenplay commissioned by somebody. And then you kind of get on the circuit of writing screenplays. But also, knowing now more about screenplays than I did 20 years ago, I realized that it's not a life that I could live. Writing screenplays is extremely uncertain. Mm. Because I've written screenplays now, I know that you can spend five years of your life writing a screenplay which will not see the light of day, and that is going to be most likely your experience. Whereas normally, if I write a novel, I can be pretty sure it's going to be published, and the work that I've put in to writing it is going to, to actually have something other than just money to show for it, which, I mean, to me is important because I love writing, I love doing what I do, but I also love the fact that I can get to share it with people. Um, 
The richest writers in the world, barring a few extremely well-known novelists, are all screenplay writers. And the richest screenplay writer in Hollywood is a woman you've never heard of because none of her screenplays have ever been made into films. She has, however, got an enormous pad in Beverly Hills with its own enormous swimming pool. All of that sounds like hell to me, and she is welcome to have it. But that is, is probably the difference between wanting to write screenplays and wanting to write novels, because a novel is a solo effort, mm. a screenplay is invariably a group effort, and sometimes an effort which doesn't actually lead to anything. And, mm. and that, that's really the difference. Um, and, 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 and you have, uh, yeah, as a novelist, you, you have way more control, don't you, as you say? Well, you as, know, a novelist, as a novelist with a publisher and mm. a reasonable expectation of being published, I can usually write a novel and then expect 18 months later for it to come out in some form. Mm. If my publisher for some reason didn't like it, I could take it to another publisher. I could self-publish it. I would have options. With a screenplay, you don't have any options. Either mm. your screenplay gets made into a movie or it doesn't. You can't then take it to somebody else if the producer you're working with just decided not to go ahead or pull the plug because they would own it. They would own that, that, mm. that work. It wouldn't be yours anymore. Um, in terms of how I felt about my book being made into a screenplay, it seems to me that those things are such different things. I mean, yes, there is something to do with the arcs of narrative which those things have in common, but in terms of the medium, they're so different that I just didn't feel anything at all. I thought, oh, it's great that it's going to be made into a movie. Let's hope they don't set it in space. Or worse, in America, <laughs> they didn't do either, and so I was really <laughs> happy that they chose to still set it in France, that they, they kept most of my characters more or less intact. But if they hadn't done, it would not have been the end of the world for me. Mm. Because, because I don't write a book hoping that it's going to grow up to be a movie. I write a book hoping that it's going to be a grow up to be the best book I can possibly write and anything that happens beyond it is just somebody else's business. Mm -hmm. And if they want to give me money for, for, for what they do to it, then all the better. In fact, if there are any producers here who want to do that, <laughs> you're a producer, sir. Uh, no, just, a, just somebody asking a question. Gentleman at the back there. But yeah, right, I mean, that, that's, that's basically how I see it. Oh, Reminds me of Nye Bevan's quote about Clement Attlee. He was a modest man and much to be modest about. <laughs> <laughs> but um, how did Mr. Fry take to the, uh, the book? Oh, well, Mr. Fry was very puzzled about the whole thing. <laughs> he hadn't read the book initially. And the boys said, oh, Miss has written a book and you're in it, Mr. Fry, and so is Charlie. And, and by then there was going to be a movie happening and everybody wanted to know who was going to play him and who was going to play the dog. And, and so eventually <laughs> I just had to come out and say, you know what, I, I just did this and I didn't realise it was going to make such a, 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 a kerfuffle. Um, and so I took him to the one picture house in Leeds that allowed us to take the dog and, and we went to see the movie together. <laughs> And the movie seemed like six hours long. I'd seen it a few <laughs> times before by then. Um, and every time his character appeared on screen, I would hear this kind of <gasps> little noise. <laughs> and the dog would whine. And I thought, oh, God, this is, this is just awful. What's going to happen? And, and finally, it finished. And, and he tottered out into the light. And I said, well, Mr. Fry, what did you think? And he went, 
Mrs. Harris, they've made me so tall. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he became quite the celebrity um, and took it all with his, his habitual good humor. It's quite good humor. There's actually on the new site of the new LGS, there's actually a little bust of him in bronze, which I believe one of the boys made. Oh. And the top of his head is very shiny because the pupils have got the habit of just basically touching the top of his head for luck. Oh. Uh, <laughs> he died true. quite recently. Oh. Um, and it, it, he would have been very touched, I think, to see how the whole school came out at lunchtime and without being told to do anything at all, just stood in silence for 20 minutes as his little cortege went past Aww. to the funeral because he was, he was genuinely loved. Mm -hmm. And I still get ex-boys who are now men running the world in one way or another um, talking about him. Um, mm. So it, it, it's kind of nice to think that, that he got that little cameo and that he liked it. Yeah, that's very sweet. I'm glad I asked that question, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, the, the, the other question that, uh, that I had up my sleeve was, um, was there an element when you wrote the book of getting even with Leeds Grammar School? And was there an element of carrying a flag for womanhood? Well, sort of. <laughs> it wasn't so much getting even as, I mean, this is, like all my St. Oswald's books, it is a comedy, albeit quite a dark comedy. I had mm. a lot of affection for the place, um, but it didn't mean that some of the members of staff didn't piss me off royally from time to time, and so there's, there's that element in there too. But there was also, that. also I wanted to write, because I don't know why, maybe it's because I've reached a certain age, I wanted to write a story about a woman coming into her power because I had entered that profession, much as Buckfast entered hers, as a, a teacher in their 20s, and I had to learn a lot of hard lessons. Um, coming back to it as a writer, definitely not in their 20s, I thought, you know what, I can, I can write about this experience now. I've got enough space to do it in the way that I want to do it, but also to, to ask some hard questions about patriarchy and what it means and whether it still exists, and uh, yes, it does, um, and about women of a certain age coming into their power, because actually that's, that's what this book is about. Um, Rebecca Buckfast is a woman of a certain age, and I quite enjoyed writing her as a lead character, because a lot of the time you read books about women of a certain age, and they're all either finding themselves in Venice, or yeah. looking for love, it's like following or a looking breakup, wistfully yeah. back at their youth, yeah. and Buckfast isn't doing any of these mm. things. Uh, she's kind of, yeah, some of it is about her youth, but she's quite pragmatic about things like that. She's quite happy to have outgrown that woman that she was and to have come into some real power instead of just the kind of puny sexual power that you get when you're gorgeous in your 20s, which mm. she's, quite, she's quite, you know... She's quite happy that she's not like that anymore and that now she's got some real, some real power and intends to use it. So I, I quite liked doing it from that angle because that, that, was, that was not definitely not my experience. Mm. Yeah. Just halfway down, thanks. I think that probably have to be our last question. Hi, Joanne. It's lovely to meet you. I really enjoy uh, reading your work. Um, I'm just wondering what your um, sort of inspiration was for sort of the magical, mystical elements of some of your characters and, and the use of um, imagery like the wind, please. 
I think all of those things are quite intuitive for me. I don't tend to think them through in the way that, that you might expect. Um, so I think the, the thing is, with, with the magical elements of things, I've always been interested in what people believed and how their belief affects their behavior. And so that, that includes things like religions, superstitions, folklore, the kind of stories that we tell ourselves as communities to, to talk about where we came from and who we are, and all those things were interesting. And because I came from two cultures, I had twice as many stories and cultural landmarks, if you like, to, to feed into. Um, so there was that. So this is a kind of lifetime's research, if you like, into, into those areas. It's why I write so much about folklore and fairy stories and fantasy, because to me all these things are linked. They're all part of why people behave the way they do, why they believe the things they do, how that affects their behavior. Um, but I never thought it through in that way. I mean, I'm thinking it through now because... Um, because people sometimes ask me questions about it. But when I write, I, I don't think those things through. I just think, okay, how do I feel about this? How, how, what lens do I want to write the story that I'm telling through? And very often it's a lens of feeling and experience. And I know that I mean, there are creative writers among you, I can tell. Um, but you know when they tell you, write what you know, they don't really mean write what you know. What they mean is, know what you're writing about, which is useful, it means do your research. If, you, if you're going to write about something that you don't have enough information about, then go off and do some research. But it also means make it emotionally resonant. Mm. Do not write about things that you don't understand from the inside. And that, that really means feelings. You, you, nobody who hasn't known love will be able to write a really convincing love story. This is the way I feel, and so, in the same way that I didn't write about motherhood until I had a child, because I didn't know what it felt like to have a child, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to do it, and that the story that I was writing would have this absence in its center. So, so there's that, too, so, but that's, that's the way I do it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the way all, all writers do it, because, as I say in my book about writing, basically there are, hundreds of paths to the same ultimate destination, which is a book. And if you take the one that gets you to the book that you wanted to write, then, then you took the right one. That's good. I think that's a really positive, wonderful note to end on, actually. So thank you very much, Joanne. Thank you, thank that's you, Yvette. Okay.